Malkin. Dr. Collins was officially sworn in on Monday, August 17, 2009 as the 16th director of the NIH. He was nominated by President Barack Obama on July 8th and was unanimously confirmed by the Senate on August 7th. He's a physician geneticist noted for his landmark discoveries of disease genes and his leadership of the National Human Genome Project. He served as director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, NHGRI, at the NIH from 1993 to 2008. With Dr. Collins at the helm, the Human Genome Project consistently met projected milestones ahead of schedule and under budget. This remarkable international project culminated in April 2003 with the completion of a finished sequence of the Human DNA Instruction Book. And I had the pleasure of attending the Gates Genome Party in 2003 and seeing Dr. Collins sing with his colleagues <laughs> on the guitar. I know some of you have seen him sing too, and it was really exciting. Oh, yeah. It was a great celebration. <laughs> On March 10, 2010, Dr. Collins was named a co-recipient of the Albany Medical Center Prize in Medicine and Biomedical Research for the leading role in this effort. In addition to his achievements as the NHGRI director, Dr. Collins' own research laboratories discovered a number of important genes, including those responsible for cystic fibrosis, neurofibromatosis, Huntington's disease, the familial endocrine cancer syndrome, and most recently the genes for type 2 diabetes, and the gene that causes Hutchinson Guilford progeria syndrome. Dr. Collins' long-standing interest in the interface between science and faith, and has written about this in the language of God, a scientist, which is for sale on our book table as well as his more recent book. And he has spent many weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Oh yes, it says here too, the language of life, DNA, and the revolution in personalized. Dr. Collins received his bachelor's in chemistry from the University of Virginia, a PhD in chemistry from Yale University, and an MD from Harvard from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Prior to coming to the NIH in 1993, he spent nine years on the faculty of the University of Michigan, where he was a Howard Hughes medical investigator, and he is an elected member of the Institute of Medicine and the National Academy of Sciences. Dr. Collins was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2007, and in the White House ceremony on October 7, 2009, Dr. Collins received the National Medal of Science, which is the highest honor bestowed on scientists by the U.S. government. And I'd like to say, on a personal note, I met Dr. Collins for the first time several years ago at an ASA meeting. I believe it was at Pepperdine, and I was a graduate student in genetics. And I was sitting in the chapel singing, and I noticed him coming and sitting next to me. I thought, I think that's Dr. Collins and enjoyed his singing voice and got to meet him after the chapel ceremony was over. And I was just really, really impressed by his humility. That was the thing that struck me more than anything else. Um, I think that as leader of NIH, I just really respect him for his humility and his integrity, and I think he's a wonderful example for those of us in public service. So with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Collins. Thank you, Susan, for that very kind introduction and for all the hard work you have done in organizing many aspects of this remarkable meeting. Likewise, to members of the ASA board who have been involved in this effort, and particularly to Randy, who's such an able leader of this organization, I want to make one thing perfectly clear. That was not because of my motorcycle. 
I had a bit of a volleyball mishap about uh, two and a half weeks ago, and this is the consequence, although my grandson says, oh, granddad, you look like RoboCop. So <laughs> I'll take that as a positive amongst what is otherwise not a terribly positive experience. But being here this evening is certainly something I've been looking forward to, and I wish that the contingencies and demands of my current uh, job as the director of NIH uh, would have offered the opportunity for me to spend more time with you because this is a wonderful agenda with many uh, impressive presentations and panels and I hope you're soaking it up in the way that I would love to as well. I became a Christian in 1977 and it was just two years after that that I came to my first ASA meeting and joined the American Scientific Affiliation and it was for me a very encouraging kind of experience to have the chance to rub shoulders with other scientists who were believers and who were asking a lot of the same questions that I was asking. Not that we could always figure out the answers, but it was refreshing and energizing and exciting to have the chance to be in that kind of environment. And I'm sure that is the case here this weekend at CUA. And thank you, uh, Dean, for allowing us uh, to come and gather here in this uh, beautiful university and uh, enjoy the conversations uh, that are going on here uh, over the course of a couple of days. Well, it has now been almost a year since I stepped up to this role of being the director of the NIH, having been asked to do that by President Obama. And so in thinking about what to talk about, it did seem like this has been a year of living in the fishbowl, so maybe that would be a reasonable theme. So I'm going to tell you something about the scientific challenges that are, are right now on my mind because biomedical research is moving forward at a remarkable pace. Uh, and also then a bit about how, from my perspective as a Christian, the scientific endeavor and, and the belief uh, efforts that all of us uh, care about deeply can be harmonized, uh, even though maybe uh, there are those in our midst, uh, or around us anyway, uh, who are arguing that that is a conflict that can't be resolved. I think we are all here because we believe it's not only possible to resolve it, there's great joy to be found in that effort. So I take as my opening text uh, the verses from Matthew, familiar to all of you, where the disciples are asking Jesus, so what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, quoting from Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. But if you go back to Deuteronomy, that's not quite what it said. The all your mind part wasn't there, but it is in Jesus's words. And I find that to be very interesting, uh, that the Christ in trying to say, what is the greatest commandment, brings up the idea that you should love the Lord with your mind an exhortation uh, towards the combination of faith and reason uh, to seek out and find the truth. And certainly for those of us who are scientists and believers, uh, the ability to use your mind in both of these areas uh, is a source, I think, of great comfort and joy. And yet there are those out there around us who may imagine that somehow faith and reason are incompatible. And if you start using your mind, you'll be in trouble as far as anything that has to do with spirituality. I believe that is a misapprehension, but it's certainly a fairly widespread one. I'm very fond of these two images because I think they sort of set up the conversation that's going on across uh, this meeting and across the years and the decades about science and faith. On the left, a beautiful rose window 
from York Minster Cathedral on the right, a picture of DNA, but not the usual one where you see it from the side with the double helix obvious to you. But here, looking down the long axis of that double helix, uh, producing a radial pattern that's quite beautiful and perhaps somewhat evocative of the same radial pattern you see in many beautiful rose windows in cathedrals, including those in this uh, historic city. And this sets up the question about, well, can you actually have both of these worldviews at the same time? Are you forced to choose uh, one or the other? There are many messages out there now in society that would say it's got to be one or the other. Either you go with science or you go with faith. Uh, putting the two together is not going to be feasible. I might have said that myself uh, when I was a graduate student in physical chemistry studying quantum mechanics at Yale in the early 1970s. Uh, I was an atheist, and I didn't think there was any need to consider anything beyond second-order differential equations, which are wonderful stuff, to be sure. Uh, going then to medical school, encountering the realities of life and death, seeing that those were not hypothetical issues, but actually things that real people were facing in front of me every day, I had to recognize that my answers to questions like, is there a God, had never really been carefully considered and over the course of a couple of years, with a lot of help from other wise advisors, uh, and particularly one who I never met but whose words meant a lot to me, that being the Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis, uh, I became a believer. And that was at the age of 27. And over the now 33 years since that time, I have found increasing reasons to feel com totally comfortable with the merging of these worldviews, as long as it is clear when you're asking a question, what kind of question is it? you're asking a question about how nature works, well, science is the way to get that answer. But if you're asking a question like, why are we here? Or is there a God? Science is pretty much required to remain silent. Those are not questions for which science can offer really meaningful answers because it goes beyond the limits of science's ability uh, to provide such answers. And I've written more about this whole journey of mine in a book already kindly mentioned uh, by Susan called The Language of God, uh, which I think uh, some of you have seen. And I'm not going to linger very long on that particular uh, story because I want to move on to what's uh, happening around us here in this town uh, in the course of the last year. So let me now move towards the science part of my trajectory, which has been a pretty wild ride. And certainly much of it uh, between 1990 and 2003 devoted to an effort to try to read out all of the DNA sequence of the human genome. And in fact, in April 2003, just 50 years to the month from when Watson and Crick described uh, the structure of DNA, the famous double helix in a paper in Nature, April 25th, 1953, 50 years later, we were able to say we have a complete sequence of our own instruction book, all three billion letters of the human DNA sequence. And that took a period of 13 years, although it was uh, expected to take even longer and a great deal of effort from a large number of dedicated individuals, just a few of whom are shown here, these being most of the leaders of the 20-some uh, centers that uh, put forward the effort to make this happen from six countries of the world, and did so without worrying too much about who would get the credit and who gave all the data away every 24 hours to make sure that it was immediately usable. We got early on into the science policy issues in the Human Genome Project, something that continues to be a topic of great interest here in Washington today, which is uh, when is data made accessible to the general public? 
when are scientists obligated to release information that they know? And I think the Genome Project set a remarkably uh, high standard for that by insisting that the information not be patented, but basically placed into the public domain on a daily basis in order to empower the best brains of the world to begin to use this in ways that would ultimately benefit human health. And interestingly, that approach of uh, immediate data release has now become the norm in the field of genomics and is spilling over into a number of other areas as well. And that was not the case 15 years ago. Uh, certainly that requires a certain amount of risk on the part of the people generating the data to be sure that this immediate release of data doesn't result in their not being recognized as having produced it. And it requires a certain amount of responsibility on the part of users to remember where that data came from. But I think that's actually working out pretty well. And it is certainly speeding up the process of medical advances that might otherwise wait a long time for data to actually be released. And when I'm talking about release early here, this is well before publication. This is not waiting for a publication uh, to make it possible to give the data away. And the internet, of course, makes that possible. I had the great fortune uh, in that circumstance of living up to Woodrow Wilson's uh, statement here of using all the brains that I could borrow in, in addition to the limited capacities I have myself, and that is continuing to be true now as the director of the NIH, an organization that is the largest supporter of biomedical research in the world. Uh, I have a total of 17,000 employees who work for me. I have 42 direct reports, which is a ridiculous organizational structure that only a Congress could design. <laughs> And I oversee a budget of $31 billion every year trying to make sure that that is used in the best possible way uh, to support innovation and creativity and to move things forward as far as our understanding of human health. The uh, success from the Human Genome Project led quickly not only to the description of the human DNA, the human genome, but also to many other genomes that came pouring out of the laboratories fairly quickly after that, as you can see just from this limited set of covers of nature and science, going all the way to the platypus and beyond, because at this point, there are complete DNA sequences of dozens of vertebrates and even more invertebrates, and the ability to do the comparisons gives us a chance in a digital fashion to see the imprint of evolution in ways that Darwin never could have imagined and certainly point strongly, uh, almost incontrovertibly, uh, to the notion of a common ancestor from which all of these animals and plants and wonderful diverse species have been developed. If Darwin had had a time machine, maybe he could have been able to show that his theory was correct even more convincingly, but DNA does it pretty well here because it effectively gives you that imprint, uh, that record of history, by looking at those letters uh, written within the genomes of all of us. Meanwhile, uh, the sequencing effort, which for that first human genome uh, took 13 years and cost about $400 million, has been rocketing forward in terms of the ability to do this at ever-increasing speed and uh, reduced cost. You can see the black line here is the famous Moore's Law for computers, uh, which has been true now for the course of several decades, where the cost of computing and the throughput for computing uh, improve by a factor of two every couple of years. You can see that DNA sequencing, which is in the red here, is going faster than that. And in fact, we've seen a 14,000-fold drop in the cost of sequencing over the course of the last 10 years. So it is now possible to sequence a complete human genome for about $10,000. 
compared to 400 million, that's not bad. And uh, probably by four or five years from now, we will reach the sort of mythical $1,000 genome uh, where all of us who are interested and uh, hopefully will have some enthusiasm uh, from medical care uh, reinforcement of uh, payments uh, to make this possible. Just have your genome in your medical record so that it's there when somebody like your physician wants to query it and see whether they're choosing the right drug at the right dose uh, for you or whether they're able to make a better prediction about your future risks of illness than simply making a guess. So this is coming extremely rapidly. And we are discovering, after all, the implications of all of this for disease. Every disease that I know of has some genetic component. Certainly some diseases like cystic fibrosis on the left are heavily influenced by a single gene gone awry. We now know the basis of 4,000 such genetic diseases where a single gene is capable of causing fairly reproducibly a condition. We only have treatments for a few hundred of those, and one of the goals right now is to try to change that. For diseases like diabetes in the middle here, which is most of the common illnesses, I could have labeled that also hypertension or asthma or coronary artery disease or schizophrenia. Uh, we uh, understand that this is a mix of genetics and environment, but as I'll tell you in a moment, we're learning about the genetic part at a furious pace. Even infectious diseases like HIV AIDS, which you might think really shouldn't be on this picture because they're, after all, caused by an exogenous agent, a virus, well, it's very clear that the exposure to that virus uh, may have a different consequence depending on what genes you bring to the picnic. And if it turns out that you're one of those one in a hundred people who is genetically immune to HIV, you can be exposed repeatedly and never develop the disease. And by knowing that, we've developed a very good idea about drug therapy to try to help the other 99 out of 100 who don't have that genetic immunity. So let me say something about this middle category here uh, of common diseases like diabetes. Diseases that we know run in families, but it's not very clean cut. It's clear that this is not something Mendel would approve of. It's not dominant, it's not recessive. It's messy, but it is clearly influenced by heredity. So what we expected would be that if for a disease like diabetes, there would be a number of genes involved, no single one of which was very strong in its predictability, but you put the whole thing together and you end up with a high risk. So let me show you how that's played out. And these are the human chromosomes in a diagram form, 1 through 22 in X and Y. 2005, the results from the Genome Project and another effort that came right after that called HapMap made it possible for the first time uh, to take a common disease that is not inherited in a simple fashion and identify a strong genetic contributor. And that's what that little orange bullet over there is. That's a gene on chromosome 1 that plays a very significant role in the risk of macular degeneration, which is, after all, the most common cause of blindness in the elderly, uh, a really unfortunate consequence uh, for many people in their 70s, 80s, uh, who begin to lose their vision, and many of them ultimately no longer able to read or drive a car. And we re knew very little about this, and many people suspected this must be purely environmental. After all, it comes on so late. How could that be genetic? Well, there's a gene there called complement factor H, uh, which has a common variant in it, which if you have that variant, substantially increases your risk. And it points you towards a pathway that must be involved in disease that nobody knew about before. So it opens up an entirely new vista of opportunity in terms of drug therapy. Well, that was the first one. That was 2005. We were just beginning to get this technology ready to tackle problems of this difficulty. 
Let me show you what happens over the course of the next five years. Uh, you will see colored bullets start to appear across the chromosomes. I won't tell you which disease each one is because it would take too long, but I think you can begin to see the tapestry appearing. So 2006, a few more. 2007, we're going to divide this up by quarters. By the end of 2007, it's looking pretty busy. 2008, things are really happening. 2009, look at all those building up. And here's my most recent one as of about April 1st. And I guess it's time to upgrade this once again. This all published in the New England Journal about a month ago. So each one of those colored bullets is a gene that has been well validated as associated with a risk of a disease. And I would say 90% of those are surprises. They're not the genes you would have guessed would be involved. Most of them have a rather small impact on the absolute risk, but they're pointing you towards pathways that are involved in disease that are the best chance we've had in a very long time to come up with ideas about prevention and treatment. Uh, here's an example over there on chromosome 2. Uh, there's a gene there called BCL11A. Now, why did that turn up? That turned up by actually studying people with sickle cell anemia, which after all is a single gene disease caused by a mutation on chromosome 11 in the beta globin gene. But not everybody with sickle cell disease has the same severity. There are some people who have early onset and a terrible time with repeated crises and a shortening of lifespan. And there are other people who have a much milder form of the disease because they manage to make a substantial amount of fetal hemoglobin as well as the adult hemoglobin. If we could figure out how to turn on a bit of fetal hemoglobin in everybody with sickle cell disease, we would probably have a very effective therapy. Well, what do you do? You look at a lot of people with sickle cell disease and you check where in the genome is the modifier that has the effect on the fetal hemoglobin level. That's it, BCL11A is a very strong modifier and it turns out it makes a protein. And if you have a lot of those proteins, your fetal levels are low, and if you have a little bit less, your fetal levels are high. Perfect situation to design a drug to basically block BCL11A, and you should have a treatment for sickle cell disease, and that effort is underway right now. So all of these insights, and I could tell you many stories uh, that go along with this diagram, are really energizing our whole field, both in terms of diagnostics and in terms of therapeutics. The diagnostic part has led to a somewhat controversial set of companies coming onto uh, the landscape and offering direct to consumers the chance to find out your own risks based on a DNA analysis. These three companies who were called on the carpet about 10 days ago by the Investigation and Oversight Committee of the House uh, to try to explain whether they were doing this a little sooner than they should be. Uh, we'll offer you for anywhere between $400 and $2,500 a sample of about a million variants in your genome, and then they will give you some estimate about what your risks for heart disease, asthma, and about 30 other conditions uh, might be. This is, in fact, interesting. The laboratory work is quite accurate. The problem is we haven't discovered an awful lot of the heritability of many of these conditions. And so a prediction you get today could readily turn out to be revised in another few years, and what you think you know about your own risks could turn out to be misleading, and that's the source now of some questions that are being raised about whether it's good for people to have access to this or not. I have to tell you, for me, 
I'm a little uncomfortable with the idea of this paternalism uh, view that we decide uh, that who's able to interpret information or not. I think if there are people who want access to the information who understand the limitations and are willing to pay for it, uh, then probably we shouldn't get in their way as long as it's being done with good accuracy. But the FDA is now getting quite engaged in this. One of my closest colleagues in the government is Margaret Hamburg, the commissioner of the FDA. And we've had many long conversations about what should be done here. There are some uh, direct-to-consumer marketing efforts that are not exactly scientifically based. These three are actually pretty reputable, but there are some that are pretty wacky, uh, even approaching snake oil. And there's nothing being done uh, to prevent those uh, from misleading consumers about tests for things like ADHD in your children. Some of those companies will not only do the test, but then, oddly enough, most of the tests turn out to be positive, and then you need to buy thousands of dollars of nutritional supplements in order to keep your children from being even more badly behaved than they already are. <laughs> you know, apparently a very profitable model, but there's not a whole lot of science backing it up, and the FDA is clearly now taking steps to move in on that and do some oversight, which is probably a good thing. In the uh, area of other applications of genomics that are exciting, uh, one thing that I started back when I was running the Genome Institute and now have a chance to nurture and encourage uh, from the NIH director's office is something called the Cancer Genome Atlas, cleverly named so that its abbreviation represents the four bases of DNA, TCGA, get it? So. Uh, this is an effort to comprehensively identify everything that's wrong in the cancer cell, recognizing that cancer is a disease of the genome. It comes about because of mistakes in DNA. And our ability to understand the whole story has been somewhat limited in the past uh, by the fact that we didn't have a comprehensive survey of everything that's wrong in a cancer cell. But now with this technology of genomics, we can do that the first target of this effort has been glioblastoma, the most common and deadly form of brain cancer. And what was done was to identify 500 brain tumors of this type and also from individuals who gave good consent for this and who had blood DNA available. So you could make a comparison between the DNA that they were born with, which is what you find in the blood, and what was going on in the cancer cell, which had undergone a variety of mutations that caused those cells to grow out of control. And glioblastoma, uh, which had been lumped together as basically one disease, when you look at it from the genome perspective, is at least five different subtypes with very different prognostic indicators and different responses to therapies. And furthermore, you discover in the process a whole bunch of targets for drugs that haven't been developed yet <clears throat> because we didn't know we should have a drug for those targets. This is just the first of what will be in the course of the next three or four years, a systematic and comprehensive evaluation of the 20 most common cancers, which is going to utterly revise our approach to the disease. And already there are some pretty dramatic stories coming out of this molecular approach to cancer. Uh, Beverly, who is on CBS News and who I've talked to, a pretty interesting story, diagnosed with stage four lung cancer in both lungs uh, four years ago, not a smoker, just turned up with this cancer. She was given the standard chemotherapy. The tumors kept growing. Her cancer was run through a DNA sequencing machine, and it turned out to have a rearrangement of a gene called ALK. And as it turns out, there's a drug that particularly effectively targets that. It's a real smart bomb for that particular situation. Uh, this was recently presented at the American Society of Clinical Oncology. 
and it looks as if about three-quarters of the people who have that rearrangement in their cancer uh, get a dramatic response that appears to be effectively a complete remission uh, from this drug, even if they're, as Beverly was, uh, very much in the late stages of the disease without much hope. Uh, she's now completely without any evidence of disease uh, four years later and doing quite well. That's the kind of story we want to tell over and over again. And I wish uh, we could say that all the time, but there's increasing evidence uh, that we're on the right track here. And I have written a bit about the ways in which this study of DNA is changing the practice of medicine, both in terms of prevention and diagnosis and treatment uh, in this more recent book called The Language of Life, which came out this past January. But as of August, I have taken on this other very challenging job of being the person who's supposed to try to achieve the goals in the NIH mission statement here, which is science in pursuit of fundamental knowledge about the nature and behavior of living systems and the application of that knowledge to extend healthy life and reduce the burdens of illness and disability. That's what we try to do. That is both a noble and overwhelmingly challenging pair of activities, the basic and the applied, all wedded together. And we have arguments that go on all day, every day, about whether we've got that balance right. Are we supporting too much basic science and not pushing the translational effort? Are we doing too many clinical trials and not supporting enough basic science because we don't know enough to actually do the right clinical trials? Back and forth we go, around and around. But those are fun conversations to have, and the science is changing so rapidly that the answer isn't always the same uh, one week as it was the week before. And that makes this a fascinating job. And I have amazingly talented, dedicated people to work with. We're working in the government in a circumstance uh, where they are badly paid and work extremely long hours, but are very devoted to the enterprise uh, and it wouldn't be anywhere else because of their sense uh, of public dedication. My appointment, however, was greeted with some uh, responses uh, in the press that I wanted to mention to you. Again, the fact that a scientist Christian is being named by the president as the director of the NIH uh, did not escape the notice of at least one uh, fairly uh, uh, widely uh, published atheist scientist, Sam Harris, uh, who has written a couple of books uh, arguing that uh, what we currently know about science makes belief no longer a defensible position and uh, who was really quite distressed at the, at the idea that a believer would be put in the position of NIH director. He starts off in this op-ed in the New York Times on July 26th, uh, shortly after Obama nominated me uh, with a uh, rather promising uh, sounding uh, opening paragraph, but it sort of went downhill from there. And the Final paragraph, in case you can't see it, is Francis Collins is an accomplished scientist and a man who is sincere in his beliefs, and that is precisely what makes me so uncomfortable about his nomination. <laughs> Must we really entrust the future of biomedical research in the United States to a man who sincerely believes that a scientific understanding of human nature is impossible? Uh, and what Sam is referring to there are comments that I've made, and you can find these on the web because I've been fortunate to be asked by the Veritas organization to talk in many instances on university campuses, and those tend to end up on YouTube. 
I have tried to argue that science is the way to understand natural phenomena, but for me as a believer, to say that's all there is uh, when it comes to human nature, the human spirit uh, is to actually impoverish the effort and that there are other ways of asking questions that science is not so well positioned for. Well, uh, Sam was clearly unhappy about that, and there was a bit of a uh, kerfuffle there as a number of other uh, commentators weighed in, particularly in the blogosphere, uh, about the inappropriateness of having somebody who said he was a believer in God uh, in this circumstance. Um, Interestingly, as I went around meeting with senators on the HELP Committee, which is the committee responsible uh, for doing the confirmation of this position, uh, I never got a single question uh, from a senator about my beliefs, uh, which was interesting, because they surely were aware of it. Uh, their staff do the appropriate scouring of the Internet to find out if there's any dirt on somebody who's just been nominated for one of these positions. And presumably, uh, the members uh, simply didn't think it was all that relevant. And that's kind of reassuring in my perspective. Uh, and happy to say that when the confirmation uh, was finally voted upon, it was unanimous. And that doesn't happen very often in Washington, especially in the last year or so. So I did step into this role, and I did have a chance during the process of FBI clearance, which is interesting in its own right, and, uh, and Senate confirmation, to do a little thinking about what I thought the major opportunities for NIH might be at this point. And out of this came a series of five themes uh, that are published in Science Magazine back in January that I think have served us pretty well in terms of both uh, convincing uh, members of the Congress that this is an exceptional time for medical research and therefore it would be appropriate uh, to make sure that the resources are there, but also to energize the scientific community about things that we could do that maybe we couldn't have done five years ago. One is to apply these high-throughput technologies like I talked about for cancer or for diabetes, uh, to understand fundamental biology and uncover the causes of specific diseases. Another is to take that information and move it towards therapeutics, something that we've traditionally left to the private sector, but which more and more academic investigators can uh, get involved in and want to get involved in, and we want to give them the tools to do so, and we're making uh, rapid strides in that direction. With healthcare reform having become a reality, we at NIH feel it's part of our job to be sure we're conducting the right kinds of studies that will provide evidence so that decisions that are being made uh, can actually be undergirded by data and not by just uh, opinions. For me, as somebody who spent some time volunteering uh, in missionary hospitals in Africa, uh, the idea of being able to spend an increasing amount of our NIH resources on uh, tackling some of the global health problems is very appealing, and I must say that, uh, that resonates, particularly with the younger generation of biomedical researchers who are very committed to thinking of medical problems on a global scale. And, of course, none of this happens if we don't have an invigorated and empowered biomedical research community, and particularly, therefore, I'm interested in thinking of new ways to encourage young people to come into the field and to be sure that we're supporting them and retaining them. And that's challenging because, frankly, the thing that wakes me up in the middle of the night is all of these scientific opportunities are not well matched with the resources that are available. With our economy in trouble, uh, with the increasing uh, concern about growing deficits uh, within the federal budget, biomedical research is really getting squeezed. If you're sending a grant to the NIH today hoping to get funded for your best and brightest ideas, you have less than one chance in seven that your grant is going to get funded. 
And that's the worst it's been in 40 years. And it may well get worse than that in the next year or two. And that's particularly hard on young investigators who are trying to get started. And after two or three frustrating experiences, um, they may basically decide this just isn't what I'm called to do after all. And we can't afford to lose them. They won't come back. So part of my job is to try to make that case and to try to make the point that even in tough economic times, investing in medical research is one of the best things we can do. So yeah, my first year has been quite a wild ride. In fact, I think the best image to describe what this is like is this one. Yeah, that, that's a fire hose. And that's what it feels like on a, any given day when you walk in and you're never quite sure what's going to hit you. This week, for instance, uh, the focus has been very intensively on the Gulf oil spill, uh, something that I didn't really think NIH would end up getting that involved in. But there are deep concerns about the health effects of exposures uh, of the workers who've been doing the cleanup. And if we don't do an appropriate longitudinal study over the course of a few years to follow them, we'll never really know because this kind of exposure to this volume of petroleum and also the chemical dispersants that were used by BP has never happened before. And if we don't do a carefully designed research study to assess the consequences, we'll be very sorry. But that has to be done in record time, and you have to figure out where the money's coming from, and you have to work uh, within a very complicated network of other agencies, because this is NIH, but it's also CDC and NIOSH, it's OSHA, it's EPA, uh, it is HRSA, it is all of these uh, many acronyms uh, that the government is famous for. But they're not just acronyms, they're powerful agencies with people who have their own opinions. And to try to pull this all together in a coherent enterprise uh, is not so straightforward, although I'm happy to say I think uh, as of this week, uh, things are actually looking quite encouraging uh, for a, a true trans-government effort to do this in the best possible way. I do have a chance now and then uh, to meet with interesting people who have a fair amount of influence over what goes on in this country. So on the top left uh, there, you see a visit that happened at NIH back in September by the president and Secretary Sebelius, who is my direct boss. And a very good day indeed. I had a chance, as you see in the lower right, uh, to explain some things about what's going on in terms of cutting edge science uh, to the president. Uh, there we are in a laboratory. Uh, the scientist you see in the middle is Marston Linehan, who's a surgeon who does remarkable studies on kidney cancer. So we're talking there about the advances in cancer, a topic the president is very interested in, in part because of his own uh, family history. And I, it is, I must say, wonderful to have the chance to work in an administration where science is considered uh, to be an important activity and science is looked to uh, for answers to problems that are threatening the future of our nation and our world. Uh, and that is, uh, for me, uh, one of the reasons why this is a great time uh, to be at NIH. Another thing that we got asked to do in the course of the last year uh, was to take the Recovery Act dollars, that's what ERA is, is the stimulus package, and see what could be done in terms of stimulating the economy by spending some of this on medical research. But of course, this meant it had to be done very quickly. From NIH's perspective, it had to be done well using peer review and not just throwing money at projects without being sure they were the right projects. So in the space of just a few months, we had to come up with a program that would spend $10 billion over two years on the very best science that could be identified. And that uh, stressed the system in ways uh, that were really quite remarkable. We had to line up more than 23,000 reviewers uh, to come and do the peer review. 
Uh, some of the grants programs that we thought would receive five or 6,000 applications uh, got five times that number because of the pent-up demand from the community because budgets had been flat for five years before this. But I would say what came out of this was really remarkable, and the science that gets done in these two years because of the Recovery Act uh, is wonderful to see. The problem is it's two years. You all are scientists. I mean, how many science projects do you know that have a cycle time of two years? And yet that's what we were asked to do. And that means when the Recovery Act dollars run out, which is coming soon, all of these uh, projects that got started are suddenly going to be running on fumes. And how do we deal with that falling off the cliff? That is a major cause uh, of sleeplessness uh, for all of us trying to figure out how to manage uh, the enterprise. Another area that attracted a lot of attention and certainly got into the ethics arena and uh, certainly also into an area where believers uh, have traditionally uh, been sounding some concerns, uh, and that is the area of human embryonic stem cells. You're probably familiar with the series of scientific developments over the last 12 years that have made this uh, such a hot topic, <clears throat> beginning in 1998 with Jamie Thompson's uh, ability to derive human embryonic stem cells from human blastocysts. Uh, these are stem cells then that can be grown indefinitely in culture, can be differentiated into a variety of different cell types, uh, and uh, open up a whole host of possibilities for research and maybe even for therapeutics. I think the next really huge development came in 2006 uh, with this paper. Um, in the last 10 years, I think I've read two papers that gave me cold chills. This was one of them because it was just so amazing to see that this was possible. So this is Shinya Yamanaka and his postdoc, uh, Takahashi. And what they did, which I think virtually nobody thought could possibly work, uh, was to start with skin cells, uh, in this case from mice, uh, fibroblasts, and by transferring into them a series of genes, narrowed it down to just four genes which if transferred into those cells would have caused them to essentially go back in time and become like an embryo, to become pluripotent. So this is what's called an induced pluripotent stem cell, an iPS cell. Uh, just a year later, uh, Yamanaka uh, was able to show he could do this uh, with human fibroblasts. Uh, Jamie Thompson did the same. So why is this exciting? Well, it says that if you're interested in applying embryonic stem cells for therapy, for diabetes, for instance, or for Parkinson's disease, or for spinal cord injury, if those stem cells came from somebody else, then you've got the whole transplantation problem to deal with. But if they came from you, if you could take a skin biopsy and develop those same stem cells for any organ that you might need, then you're, they're your cells, and then you don't have that concern about having to do immunosuppressives and all the other things that have vexed us uh, with the transplantation arena. So this is hugely exciting, but also uh, it, it's still very much a field in evolution. Uh, one of the concerns was uh, that these uh, particular stem cells, because they are produced by transferring in viral vectors carrying those four genes, uh, that they might not be safe to use therapeutically because you've now created something that might actually grow when it isn't supposed to and even cause cancer. And so more recent efforts have been able to do this without any vector sequences, and that, that barrier seems to be coming down. We have started now at NIH, because of the potential here just this year, a center for regenerative medicine to try to see what can be done to speed up the process of taking 
these exciting developments and moving them as fast as possible into clinical trials for things like spinal cord injury. And uh, we hope to see that happen in the next two or three years with the resources that I have decided to put into this. Of course, the other thing that I was asked to do was to serve as Obama's representative in terms of deciding what is appropriate and what is not as far as the use of human embryonic stem cells. You may well recall President Bush in August of 2001 made a decision that the only human embryonic stem cell lines that could be used by people who were funded by the federal government were those that had been derived at that point in August 2001, and that was it. And at that point, there were only 20-some uh, that were well characterized, and it was early days, and some of those turned out to have potential problems. When Obama uh, became president, he signed an executive order in March 2009 saying that it would be possible to begin to use federal funds to study other more recently derived stem cell lines as long as ethical principles were closely adhered to in terms of how those were derived with the insistence that these could only come from embryos that had been produced as part of in vitro fertilization for couples who were seeking to solve an infertility problem and that those embryos had been frozen away and were ultimately doomed for discarding, and that the families agreed to donate them without any financial or other incentive. So it was a pretty stringent long list of criteria that would allow new stem cell lines to be included. NIH was asked to formalize that, turn that into a set of guidelines. We went through two iterations of that with a lot of public comment, and then ultimately since last fall have had this process in place. And as of now, there are 75 uh, stem cell lines that have passed this very stringent ethical threshold and are now usable by federally funded researchers uh, to conduct research. Um, for me, as a believer, I will tell you that the study of human embryos has always caused some anxiety. I believe that the dignity of the human individual and the importance of considering personhood from the very moment of conception is a critical issue. At the same time, I find it hard to argue that it is more ethical to discard an embryo that has been produced as the process of in vitro fertilization uh, than it is to use it for some purpose that might help somebody. And when you consider there are 400,000 or more such embryos frozen in freezers that are not going to get used, to have a few of them utilized for this purpose seems, although I, I understand how this can still be troubling uh, to some people, it does seem like a better choice. So there we are. Now some would say, why are you even studying embryonic stem cells anymore? Now you've got iPS cells that are so promising. Uh, last week, George Daly, who's one of the leaders in this field, gave a really interesting presentation at NIH. And one of the things he told us was that when you look at these iPS cells, which can now be derived not only from skin, but also from blood, they carry a little bit of their history with them. You can figure out where they came from. In other words, they're not quite equivalent uh, to an embryonic stem cell. They still have some things about them that are not entirely uh, pluripotent. Now, will it matter? Will it make a difference for the therapeutic applications? We don't know. But it would be very foolhardy right now uh, to stop studying the comparisons between iPS cells and human embryonic stem cells. And so those studies will continue with these 75 lines which have now been approved for investigators to use. Another uh, area that caused quite a lot of discussion uh, in terms of the interface between science and theology and philosophy was the paper published by Craig Venter back in May 
uh, where he uh, indicated uh, that the work they had done, uh, what made it now possible to say uh, that we, a, a new species had been created. Now, there's a really important set of issues here in terms of what really was done. Uh, what was done by Dr. Venter and his colleagues was truly a technical tour de force. Uh, they knew the sequence of a particular microorganism. Uh, it's a, a genome of about a million base pairs. Uh, that's, of course, a lot of base pairs, but nothing like our three billion. And they synthesized that basically from scratch uh, by starting with individual nucleotides, individual letters of the DNA code, and then stripping, uh, uh, stringing them together, uh, which was a larger piece of DNA than anybody had ever created in one piece to make a million uh, base pair circle. They ran into some trouble along the way, a little mistake that caused it not to be biologically active. Ultimately, though, they got the whole thing together. And then basically, they took a cell uh, from that same species that had a very similar genome. The one they'd created, by the way, they added a few little cute tricks like a watermark and some quotes from various uh, people written into the DNA uh, sequence. <laughs> and, and basically, they replaced the genome of the microorganism that it naturally had with this synthetic one and then booted it up to see what would happen and sure enough it managed to suffice. Now I don't know any biologists that were surprised by that. Uh, we do after all understand at this point that DNA is the instruction book and if you provide cytoplasm that has all of the proteins and metabolites and lipids and other goodies in it uh, that are necessary for that cell to work and you give it a new genome to work with, it's going to work. But still, it was the first time it had been done. And there were some slightly over-the-top statements made about how this was creating synthetic life. I think it's a synthetic genome, maybe a synthetic cell. Uh, certainly, this raised questions uh, in the public press about whether this was going too far. Are we humans crossing a line here, uh, doing something that really is not appropriate? Uh, the response by the White House was to ask the President's Bioethics Council a new Council has just come into being is to study this issue as one of their first tasks. And so they have started that effort and are supposed to report in two or three months about whether there's anything here that is both uh, has the potential of risky uh, kind of outcomes in terms of the use of such technology for nefarious purposes, but also what are the ethical and philosophical consequences of having this kind of ability. And I got pulled into that quite a bit when it was just coming out. I got a call. Uh, from Joshua Du Bois, who is the head of the White House Office of Faith-Based Initiatives, uh, indicating there was a lot of concern he was hearing from leaders in the Christian church about what this meant, and uh, maybe we should get on the phone together and talk about that. Uh, it is, I think, over the course of a couple of days, it became more clear that this was perhaps not as surprising an outcome as it was being presented. But let me then sort of move into the final part of this, which is, can a scientist also be a follower of Christ? What's it like uh, to be in this role where you're very much in the fishbowl, but also to talk about your faith, which I've never been shy about discussing? I will tell you, though, as a federal employee now in this capacity of having been a presidential appointee, uh, it is very hard for me to get permission uh, to speak in venues like this. Uh, I can't tell you. Susan could tell you uh, that it took many months of going through the appropriate ethics officials in both the Department of HHS and the White House uh, to have it possible for me to come and speak here because for the most part, I'm supposed to stick to what's called official duties. 
And that means I should have said at the beginning, I am here this evening speaking as a private citizen and not representing the United States government. But you knew that already, didn't you? Well, it seems that the answer to this ought to be, well, yes, of course. For most of history, it has certainly been true that scientists were followers of Christ and embraced those, uh, those shared senses of truth and uh, were nurtured and encouraged by them. And I would say many of those arguments hold true today. After all, nature, which we study as scientists, provides some really interesting pointers to God that I would think would make it a little less comfortable for atheists to claim that they have the right answer. Why is there something instead of nothing? Uh, that sort of biggest question of all that science can't help you with. Wigner's phrase, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Uh, why did those second-order differential equations I studied as a graduate student actually describe matter and energy? There's no obvious reason why that should be either. The Big Bang, the fact that the universe seemed to have a beginning, cries out for some explanation of how that came to pass. There are interesting theories about that, but they only push the time course back. How did time get started? The precise tuning of physical constants in the universe, the anthropic principle. When I've talked to Richard Dawkins, who I speak to on occasion, and ask him, so Richard, what is the argument from science about the fact that there might be an intelligence behind the universe that bothers you most? Richard says, well, it's this one, that yeah, you can talk about the multiverse, and people do, but it does seem really quite striking that we have all of these constants that have exactly the values they have to have for any kind of complexity to have occurred in our universe. And then about ourselves, there is the matter of the moral law and a very air hot area for investigation right now. Uh, does evolutionary psychology completely explain altruism? Uh, very important question and one that I think uh, remains open to interesting investigation. Uh, but I think also, as I'll say in a moment, uh, fails to completely uh, fall uh, to a materialistic argument. So faith and science then ought to be able to get along. We've got all of these arguments about uh, how things from nature that science can't really get into effectively are pointing to the idea of an intelligence behind the universe, an intelligence that seems to be pretty familiar with physics in the first place, and apparently also familiar uh, with human nature and morality. And so one could say that faith and science are two ways of knowing, that science answers how, faith answers why. I've said these things many times, I bet you have too, and that we are reading both of the books that God gave us, the book of God's words and the book of God's works. And how could they possibly be in conflict? No problem, right? Well, in our society in the U.S., there seems to be a problem. And this bizarre little uh, ca cartoon kind of makes the case... <laughs> this works on so many levels, you know. <laughs> the never-ending debate between the cheddar and evangelical goldfish crackers. Well, and, and this is a, an amusing way of pointing out the dilemma we face where 45% of people in America, and this has not changed over the course of years, uh, believe that the earth is less than 10,000 years old. And despite the evidence that is overwhelmingly to the contrary, uh, continue to do so in a strong belief that that is required of them. Uh, because most of those people, the vast majority, have heard that that is the only acceptable position for a Christian. And then if you start to doubt that one, then your faith is in jeopardy of total collapse. 
So for me, being not only somebody who believes that the uh, universe is 13.5 billion years old and the Earth is 4.55 billion years old, but also that the study of DNA is very compelling in terms of supporting Darwin's theory, the idea of being a believer and a geneticist uh, must make my head explode, right? Because that is probably of all the areas where there is tension now between science and faith. It continues to be in the area of biology and evolution. So how do you actually make this work? Since the message you are hearing from many sources is that evolution is incompatible with faith. Well, just for fun, I'll give you one example of how one might deal with that in a circumstance where your inquisitor has an audience of about 16 million people and you're trying not to look really stupid and you're wondering, why did I let myself get into this? And that would be this experience. Yes, that's Stephen Colbert. This was filmed around Christmas, hence the background uh, scene there of the manger. Absolutely, literally interpreted. I mean, those, those seven days. 
Talk about a white knuckle experience. <laughs> but you see how clever Colbert is. He's a believer, by the way. He teaches Sunday school in a Catholic school in South Carolina. 
And he's obviously playing a role here, but he's giving a chance uh, for the conflict between evolution and uh, the, the Bible uh, to be aired in a way which maybe people listening to this would not have otherwise thought about. And a case, uh, obvious, in case uh, there really is uh, any doubt, what is the evidence for the theory of evolution? Maybe didn't come across quite as cleanly then as it might. I don't want to spend any time on this other than just one example, but I do hope in this audience, because I know there's lots of variations here in terms of the areas of science that people work on, uh, that the recognition that the evidence backing up evolution has reached the point of being about as strong as the evidence for gravity uh, is something that we have to come to grips with. For instance, here is this one example that I think is particularly powerful. You're looking at three genes here that have funny names. They happen to be in the same order in the human and the cow and the mouse genome. But I picked them for a particular reason, because the human gene in this situation in the middle, GULO, actually has sustained a very large deletion that renders it utterly unable to create a protein. So what is GULO? Well, that's galunolactone oxidase. And if you go and look up in your metabolic chart what that does, that's the enzyme, which is the uh, enzyme that is the final step in synthesizing ascorbic acid, vitamin C. And because we humans uh, can't do that, uh, that's why the sailors got scurvy, and that's why we need vitamin C. Cows and mice don't. Now, isn't it interesting, though, when you try to figure out what happened there, that you go into the human genome and you find a remnant of that gene. You can still see the pieces of it but it's been decapitated and it clearly doesn't work because we can't make vitamin C. If people try to argue that humans are not part of the evolutionary uh, tapestry of development, you would also then have to argue that God placed this defective piece of a gene in exactly this position in order to try to fool us into thinking there was a common ancestor. And that doesn't mesh with my idea of a God who's a God of all truth. I could give you many more examples of that sort. And so as we have conversations about how we can make sense out of the biblical description of origins and what science is teaching us, I think we should start uh, from the observation that we humans clearly are part uh, of the evolutionary process, unless you want to argue that God has deceptively tried uh, to place evidence that would confuse us, which again, I think is an untenable position. But if evolution is true, does that leave any room for God? Certainly some will argue no. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who I mentioned earlier and who I try to have tea with when I go to Oxford, has certainly made a very strong case against uh, the possibility of faith and is using evolution as a club over the head of believers. But in fact, this goes beyond the evidence. Uh, I had a debate with Richard in Time Magazine a few years ago, which is still up on the web, which might be a useful place uh, to ask uh, people to look at who are genuinely trying to sort out those arguments. But really, the problem here is that atheism, based on any of these arguments, is, in fact, going in the direction of a very daring dogma, as Chesterton points out, the assertion of a universal negative. We as scientists are very careful not to do that, recognizing that what we know today may be eclipsed by what is learned tomorrow. So in that context, how could you possibly say, I know there is no God? So my synthesis of this, and again, I think it is one that will resonate with many of you, although the details might in fact be a little different, but it's one that I found quite reassuring, although it's undergone a bit of change over time. It is simply that God used all of these physical processes with full intention of creating human beings. Not limited in space or time, Almighty God created our universe 13.7 billion years ago 
with the parameters tuned to allow the development of complexity over long periods of time. That plan intentionally included the mechanism of evolution to create the diversity of living things on our planet, and that especially included human beings. After God's plan for evolution in the fullness of time had prepared a sufficiently advanced brain, humanity was then gifted with free will, consciousness, and a moral sense, and thus the special status of made in God's image appeared. We humans, uh, as you read in the story of the Garden of Eden, used our free will to disobey God, leading to our realization of being in violation of the moral law, and thus our estrangement from our Creator. And for us as Christians, the solution is at hand. Jesus Christ is the solution to that estrangement. I find nothing in that simple series of statements that is inconsistent with what I know as a scientist or what I read in the Bible, as long as one is not required to adopt a very explicit interpretation of certain parts of the Bible, which frankly over many centuries have been debated by thoughtful people long before there was scientific evidence uh, to result in that debate. So what to call this synthesis? It's generally called theistic evolution. It's probably not a very appealing term for many people. An alternative of bios, that is life through logos, uh, the word, uh, is one that has now, I think, caught on a little bit. And basically, this would be simply biologos, God speaking life into being in the sense of John 1. There are objections, and I understand those and even resonate with a, no, a number of them, and this is not a settled st uh, situation, but I think there have been some very interesting and vigorous discussions uh, stimulated uh, by some of those conversations. Didn't evolution take an awfully long time? Well, yeah, for us, but remember, if God is the creator, God cannot be limited by time or you haven't solved the problem of who created God. So what might seem like a very long time to us could be the blink of an eye for a creator. And what might seem to us like a random process uh, could very well have full intentionality attached to it by a God who's not limited by time. The intelligent design question. Can evolution account for highly complex biomachines like the bacterial flagellum? I think the data increasingly says yes, that these organisms, organismal structures do not arise out of nothingness, but are built up bit by bit by an adaptation of other simpler units uh, to result in really quite marvelous micro-machines like the flagellum. And most importantly, for at least in the U.S., the question, doesn't this view conflict with the Bible? Aren't you trying to throw out some very important statements uh, from Genesis? And serious theologians, including Al Mohler in his recent a presentation. I have argued that an acceptance of evolution simply cannot be meshed uh, with a reasonable interpretation of Genesis. But I think that argument is not one that over the course of time has always been as strongly held as it seems to be, ironically, in many quarters today when we have evidence to the contrary. And I am so fond of Augustine's writings about this that I have to once again uh, show this quotation which seems so relevant uh, to these debates today in matters that are so obscure and far beyond our vision. And he's writing here about Genesis. We find in Holy Scripture passages which can be interpreted in very different ways without prejudice to the faith we have received. In such cases, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search for truth justly undermines this position, we too fall with it. Does that sound like something that's happening in some quarters today? It does indeed. Other objections to biologos, well, what about Adam and Eve? 
Were these historical figures? Were they allegorical figures? Very interesting questions. I've learned a lot uh, from talking with Dennis Alexander and reading the book that he's written about this, and I think you were fortunate to have him uh, with you here at this meeting. And I think basically this is one of those questions where there is not a single simple answer, but there are some options, and some of them maybe fit a little better and some of them not quite so well, but reasonable people can agree that we don't necessarily have to say what the right answer is. As long as it's pretty clear, there are some plausible answers, and then we don't have to get so threatened about what science is teaching us about human origins. What about the flood? What about miracles? Can the moral law be explained by natural selection, something I mentioned a bit ago? Well, certainly a lot of effort is going on to try to explain altruism on the basis of group selection. People like Martin Novak at Harvard have done really interesting simulations of this uh, using uh, variations on the prisoner's dilemma. Uh, but even if it turns out that we can show that evolution does have some power to infuse the idea of altruism into our species, that doesn't really solve the problem, does it? Because if, in fact, you're going to say this is an entirely evolutionary process, then there's no such thing as good or evil. We've been hoodwinked, and we've been forced into an illusion that right and wrong actually have meaning. Even the atheists have trouble with that one and how to live within such a worldview. And I think, frankly, that hasn't fully been addressed uh, in the atheistic perspective of just exactly where this takes you if you're going to try to argue that morality is entirely on naturalistic grounds. So how should we engage, uh, dear members of ASA, uh, my, uh, my family and friends here, uh, in this dialogue about science and faith? It does seem that the uh, atmosphere is charged. It does seem that the shrill voices that are expressing extreme views uh, seem to occupy most of the stage time. And we, I think, as genuine uh, people who are trying to, s to seek out the harmony, are oftentimes a little frustrated, I think, about how best to do so. I don't have any great answers for you, but certainly one of them is to always be prepared, as it says in 1 Peter uh, 3.15, to give an answer. Be prepared when an atheist comes at you with an argument about how could you possibly believe in Jesus Christ when evolution has shown that the Bible is all wrong. So how do you respond to that? There are very good answers to that. And, of course, it does require a lot of patient, tolerant listening to each person's view, even if it seems very hard uh, to listen to or understand. And then we are called, I think, not to be aggressive, uh, not to be trying to score points, uh, but to engage winsomely and generously. And you know what that song says, they'll know we are Christians by what? Our love. And that we must hang on to. And be patient. It took 150 years... That's about the age of the Darwin origin of species, but in fact, this problem's been going on a little longer than that, to get into the current mess. And even with the most effective arguments from rationality, we're probably not going to turn it around in the next uh, three or four months. And then take advantage of the resources available. This organization, ASA, has produced many, the journal, uh, many of the things that you uh, have been doing individually. I'll just mention a few that I think are particularly powerful and a lot of these weren't around a few years ago. Seems to me there's been a wonderful outpouring of such resources that are friendly uh, to non-scientists uh, to be able to understand uh, where we're coming from. I'm delighted to see uh, that uh, AAAS has made the very wise and, and uh, brilliant decision 
to welcome a new director, Jennifer Wiseman, who's sitting right over here, to run the dialogue on science, ethics, and religion. I mean, here is an organization that stands up for science in all of its forms and is choosing uh, to emphasize by the continuing, ongoing nature of this program, the importance of dialogue with people of faith. And Jennifer, with her own perspective uh, as a scientist uh, in a leadership role at NASA, and now taking this role on as a serious believer, trying to bring those fields together, uh, is doing all of us, I think, uh, a wonderful service. And we should support her in every way that we can or that the government will allow us to. In my case, they don't always. I will point uh, somewhat immodestly uh, to this uh, particular organization, the BioLogos Foundation, which I had the privilege of starting uh, before I became uh, in my current position and was required to step away from it. BioLogos Foundation continues, though, to flourish uh, under the able leadership of Daryl Falk as president uh, with involvement by several other uh, really remarkable people, Peter Enns, Carl Giverson, Simon Stevens, Ralph Veerman. And uh, this uh, particular enterprise has now become a website, which if you've not looked at, I would encourage you to. There's something new there every day. Uh, they are now getting 56,000 hits every month. Uh, the, the level of dialogue and the sophistication of the conversation that goes on on this website is really gratifying. Uh, it is respectful. It is thoughtful. It is deep. And in addition, this website includes proposed answers to the 35 most frequently asked questions that I've encountered uh, from those uh, who are trying to sort out the arguments about science and faith. Uh, and those are, I think, also helpful as a resource uh, for you to point people to who are trying to understand uh, what thoughtful answers might exist. I was very taken by the Test of Faith uh, video that was produced uh, uh, by Dennis and his team at the Faraday Institute. And I uh, would encourage you, if you've not uh, seen this, uh, to also see if there are ways to incorporate that into your own efforts to reach out to people because it is very thought-provoking. And again, immodestly, I just say that there's also this book, which just is now out for about three months, which is not something I can take much credit for because basically what's in here are other people's writings. This is an anthology uh, going back uh, as far as Plato and up to Plantinga and everything in between uh, with uh, people who have thought deeply about uh, how faith and reason can in fact fit together. Uh, it is primarily a Christian point of view, but there are uh, some other perspectives there as well. So we're back to this, back to these worldviews. For me now in my 60th year, uh, it is a joy uh, to be able to come to a place like this and to talk with all of you about the possibilities presented uh, by finding harmony between the scientific and the spiritual perspectives. And it is also a source of sadness uh, to see that in many quarters uh, that is not seen as a possibility. I don't want to live in a future society where one of these worldviews has to triumph and the other one has to go away. I don't think that is what any of us uh, would think would be a healthy or happy circumstance. And yet there are forces that are trying to make that outcome occur. I think the ASA is in a special position uh, to try in a thoughtful and winsome and loving way uh, to continue to make the case about those two books that God has given us and the joys that we have in being able uh, to read both of them. And again, though, uh, reminding us and reminding myself that we should think carefully about how we present ourselves. Certainly in essential things, we should seek for unity. We are followers of Jesus. 
in non-essential things, okay, liberty. You may have one view of a verse in the Bible. I may have another. But in all things, charity. For those of us in this room and those of us out there in the rest of the world, uh, charity must be our watchword. So I thank you for your attention, and I was going to just in a slightly silly way, because it's Saturday night, uh, wind this up with a little bit of a musical event, if you would possibly tolerate that. So Jay, can I ask you to bring...